Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel San, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. Hey guys, Jack Spierko here with episode 41 of Miyagi Mornings. I'm near one of my other systems. This is a pretty cool system here. Uh, this is a little 300-gallon system with a couple ebb and flow beds uh, hooked up to it. And you can see off to my rear there as the ducks go cruising behind it. That's one of four flow-through wicking beds that grow food off of this one little system here. And Not really anything to do with today's topic, but it will be in a second. Uh, for those of you listening to the audio podcast, you've probably seen it before anyway. So anyway, guys, I wanted to talk to you today about something I found very disturbing during my recent participation with something called the Greater Reset, where the entire point was to fight back against the Great Reset and show people what they could do. The whole thing went off without a hitch. Some presenters are better than others. That's always how everything is. That's not the issue. Nothing that happened during the presentations was disturbing or anything. Well, it's sort of concurrently with. It was monitoring some of the chat going on by the audience. Over 12,000 people registered for it. I thought, wow, this is great, man. This is 12,000 people. are like, screw you. I'm going to live my life on my terms. And I'm sure most of those people are that way. That's why they showed up. But the sheer number of defeatists that were there, well, we're never going back to the old normal. We're stuck with the new normal, and we need to figure out how to live with it. I won't even, don't even get me started on the freaking militant vegans. And I got, just so you understand, I use the term militant vegan for a reason. I, there's vegans I have no problems with. Militant vegans that have to tell you about why you're wrong or whatever, I got no time for. Um, but that was a different thing. It was the defeatism. The new normal is going to be here forever. There's nothing we can do about it. Then what are you doing here? Why are you part of a group of people pushing back against this bullshit Right Or learn to make the best of your suffering. You know what? I think there's value in knowing how to suffer, but you don't make the best of your suffering. You counteract and fight back against suffering. You can sit there and wall around and go, I'm learning from my suffering. You can say, you know what? Screw this shit. And this is my point today. I don't want the new normal, and I've refused to accept it. The new normal does not affect my life. In minor ways like, you know, should I take a vacation too? Oh, no, they have lockdowns. They're screwed. I'll go somewhere else. But my day-to-day -day life is unaffected. But you know what else I don't want? Whatever the fuck it was, I don't want the old normal either. And I haven't had the normal, whatever's normal for people, I haven't had for over a decade. And I don't want it. I want this, what I have behind me. My life on my terms, my way. My animals, my systems that grow food, my little piece of land, which for some of you, but you're all rich and have a giant farm. I have a three-acre piece of rock. If you can't get at least what I have, you're not trying hard enough. But back to, let's try to stay on point today, Jack. Let's not go too rant on a Monday. I don't want your shitty normal, whatever that is. Normal is what society has dictated that your life shall be at the moment. So the new normal is just the next version of the same bullshit. And when I was explaining, like, my life really hasn't changed. Why don't you worry about the suffering people, Jack? What about all the people suffering? You live in a bubble. You live in a bubble. You need to look outside of your bubble. <laughs> what you call a bubble, I call lifestyle design. If it's a bubble, I built it. And my message isn't, oh, look how smart I am. I are smart, S-M-R-T, like Homer Simpson, right? No. My message is, I'm not that special. I'm not that great. I'm really not. I'm not even that smart. I just did something a lot of people seem to no longer have the freaking balls to do. I made a decision for myself and my life to live my life on my own terms. You can do that, too. It's not really that hard. You just have to decide... You know what? I see what y'all are doing. Y'all go ahead and do that. See, to someone that believes in liberty, if you want to cower and you want to drive around in your car alone with three masks on, I'll make fun of you. I'll mock you. I think you're a moron. 
but I will defend to the death your right to be an idiot as long as you do not try to force me to do the same thing. And when you try to force me to do stupid shit like that, you know what I do? I just don't do it. Well, we'll make you. Go ahead, try. You see how much confidence that comes out with? You know why? Because I freaking mean it when I say it. This is my way of life. And if I can't live my life on my terms, I'll die defending it. Do you notice I didn't blink when I said that? Do you notice I didn't stutter when I said that? Do you know why? Because I fucking mean it. That's why. You guys can go out and you can be pussies if you want to. You can cower if you want to. You can accept the new normal if you want to. You can plead and beg to go back to the old normal, which also sucked if you want to. I will honor your choice, but I'm going to demonstrate the way to live. Back when all this shit started, like in, in, in March and April, which is, by the way, about a year you've been trained this way. We'll get to that in a second. You've been trained this way for a year. That's why you're accepting this conditioning, right? And you're trying to make a deal to go back to something that also sucked. Because it was better than this suck. Right? But back when that was going on, and we were doing all this stuff, and we were still doing really good, and we were you know, bringing our harvest in, and we were making salads, and we were cooking steak and everything, and we were putting stuff out on social media, my wife said, do you think maybe we shouldn't be doing this? And I was like, well, why not? She goes, well, you know, isn't it kind of throwing in people's faces that, like, look how good we're doing and, and a lot of people are suffering? And I understood where she was coming from. And, man, I love my wife, and I always consider what my wife says. And if you don't do that, man, you're stupid. Just saying. You're not only going to be miserable. You're also clearly stupid. But when I thought about it and we discussed it instead of argued about it, which is a skill many of you all need to learn, uh, when dealing with your family, what we came to was, how can I tell you that these things are possible if I don't demonstrate them? If I was always on the air running my mouth about aquaponics and how awesome aquaponics is, and they said, and people came to me, well, Jack, do you have any videos or pictures of anything that you've done with aquaponics? And I was like, yeah, you know, I don't really want to show off what I do. Just, you know, aquaponics is great. You know what you'd say? He's a lying bastard. He's a poser. He doesn't know shit about aquaponics. Maybe aquaponics is all he says it is. Maybe it isn't. I don't know, but I'm going to go listen to somebody else who actually has an aquaponics system to talk about, or three. Right? Okay, so when I tell you you can build a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't, I'm going to fucking demonstrate that. I'm going to do it every fucking day. When shit gets good, I'm going to demonstrate how you can make it better. When shit gets bad, I'm going to show you how to keep it good. And I'm going to keep doing that. And I don't want your shitty new normal, and I don't want your shitty old normal. And if you're thinking of the mindset of, boy, I just really want to get back to normal, you're thinking mediocrity. You're exactly where they want you to be. You've been conditioned by this training. Let me explain it to you. Like, so I will use a thing that people think is cruel, but I only have to use it a very, very limited number of times because dogs want to cooperate with you if you're not a shitty dog trainer. So I use an electric dog training collar. By the way, it hasn't been taken out of the drawer for probably... The batteries are probably corroded in the damn thing. It's been so long since I've had to use it. But, like, when my dog Charlie was attacking chainsaws, that's cruel. If the dog sneaks up behind you and doesn't know you're running a chainsaw and bites the bar while the chain's running, you can imagine the horrific injury. So we had to learn certain disciplines. So we put the training collar on the dog. And then we put the setting as low as it would possibly go. And then... The dog did something we didn't like, something that wasn't really going to hurt him, so we activated the training collar, and nothing happened. So we turned it up a little bit. And we turned it up to just the level, oh, <laughs> what the hell was that? I don't like that. And then we used it probably less than half a dozen times. What we used more often was a little vibrate. Like a, like a pager on the dog's neck. And the dog's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. So he don't want me to do that. Okay, I'm not going to do that, right? And we got to the point where I could literally, like, because he understood that there was a remote to it, I could hold up my cell phone and go, hey, dude, hey, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. And he knows full well he's not wearing the collar. At that point, he's been conditioned to see me as a pack leader and realize I'm telling you not to do a thing. And now I can just go, dude, don't do that. I mean, seriously, like, when I train my dogs, I'm like, no, harsh, right? But I've got my dog trained to the point, like, dude, don't do that. Oh, okay, all right. That's training. That's fine for a dog. A dog is a domesticated animal. You are not supposed to be a fucking domesticated animal. Do you understand that? And do you understand the goal of the people that run this fucking world is to make you a domesticated animal? That's their stated goal. They don't say it that way, but go read what they want. 
They want you to live on livestock feed. They want to put you on a universal basic income, which is barely enough to survive, and then say, you're screwed, you better be good, or we'll turn it off. Look at the way we domesticate animals. Let's say we had some wild pigs living out in the woods behind me. By the way, there are some. And I want to domesticate them. You know what I do? I steal the babies from their mother. I feed them from a bottle. I confine them, and I train them that I am the source of everything. And once they believe that, they're as tame as a dog that fast. You know where the pig has it over on us? If I open the fence, those pigs will find the hole, they'll get out, and in one generation they'll go back to feral. The pig is more wild. The domesticated pink pig that we have kept in a pigsty for hundreds of years is more wild than the average person is right now. Your fucking cat is more wild than you are right now. That's a crime. What I'm doing may look very domestic, right? Because, hey, look at the way he lives. Bees build pretty sophisticated structures. Lots of animals build pretty sophisticated structures. They're wild. This, using the intellect that a human has, is a great way to live. So I've constructed it for myself. That's independent decision making. That's not being domesticated. The old normal is just another phase of domestication. All you're saying is, I don't like this new domestication. I want to go back to the old style. It's not a bubble. It's lifestyle design. You either take control right now, or with the way they're speeding this thing up, you might as well just put your own shot collar on. Just go be their bitch. I've got no time in my life for defeatist language anymore. We're too deep into this now. I'm a leader. Defeatism is so far behind me, you're going to have to find somebody else if you're a defeatist. I mean, literally, you're going to have to go hunt down somebody who's got enough of their shit together to be a decent leader who will still entertain defeatism at this point. Because all of us who are really doing the shit we've been teaching for so long, we left that shit behind. I can't, we're literally at a critical mass point where Society is going to split into people that will not accept this and the people that will. And it doesn't mean all the people that will accept it will do so quietly and won't bitch or complain or whine. They don't care if you bitch or complain or whine. As long as you get in line, as long as you go where they tell you, to the little paddock they let you eat in, as long as you're ready for the slaughterhouse when they say, they'll let you live a pretty good life. It's not good enough for me. Fuck your old normal. Fuck your new normal. I'm living my life. I invite you to join me. Take care, guys. Hey, guys. Jack Spierko here with another episode of Miyagi Mornings. And uh, let me make sure the mic is synced. It is. Okay. So today we're going to talk about chickens. And uh, I consider myself a chicken amateur. I really am. Um, I'm much more a duck guy. I, I, not to brag or anything, but I think there's probably very few people that can tell you things about ducks that I can't other than maybe some specific things to extreme northern climates where I've never raised livestock at all in. Chickens I've played with. I once had a flock of almost 70 birds, so I think I'm pretty qualified to answer this question. Just know that your mileage may vary, and I am not guaranteeing anything that I tell you here, and I'm giving kind of round estimated numbers based on the question. So the question, first of all, came from MeWe, and if you go to MeWe.com and friend me up, uh, it might take a day or two, but I will accept your friend request. I accept 100% of people on MeWe as friends because of the way it works. And uh, if you turn out to be an asshat, I ban you. And otherwise, I just trust you first because, hey, I'm a public personality. I want you to hear what I'm saying anyway. But I have made a post, and I have stickied it to the top of my profile on MeWe. And it is specifically for suggesting uh, topics and asking questions for Miyagi Mornings. And while I'm sure I'll come up with other topics and other inputs, it is the only official way to specifically ask for a question or uh, topic on Miyagi Mornings from now on. That's a little incentive to get on MeWe. And I plan on some of these alternative uh, social media platforms to do some things exclusively there. I'm doing some exclusive stuff when it comes to video content on Odyssey. The only way you'll know is to get over there and check out my Odyssey profile. And I don't know what I'm going to do with Float yet, but I have some ideas coming down the pike. All right, so the basic question was about really about how roosters relate with hens and how you manage a flock with roosters. They included, I'm going from memory here, but do you put your roosters in your hen house with your hens at night? The answer to that one is yes, absolutely. 
Uh, can two roosters even get along? Can you even have a flock with more than one rooster? And uh, also about feed, like where do I get my non-GMO, non-corn, non-soy feed, what brand do I use, etc. So we're going to just do all of that because this is all pretty straightforward. My basic experience in the general consensus is your rooster-to-hen ratio to have multiple roosters in a flock needs to be somewhere between 7 and 10 hens to the rooster. And if you do that, in general, not guaranteed, in general, roosters will tend to get along and not overbreed your hens. I can tell you that ratio works perfectly with ducks. It's actually a bit low if you want to be reproducing ducks. Um, ducks are not monogamous at all, but they tend to kind of decide, like, this is my little group that I'm going to breed with that will cooperate. And so I have two drakes and uh, 18 ducks. And I can tell you right now my fertility rate with my ducks is pretty low. With chickens, that would be almost a perfect ratio, not just for keeping the peace, but for keeping pretty high fertility as well. Running that ratio... Uh, I once just randomly threw 32 eggs in an incubator and hatched 31. I have never had that kind of hatch rate with ducks, no matter what I've done. So you will have plenty of fertility at that ratio, and it will probably, keyword probably, work. There is no guarantees with this. I also can describe the behavior of some of the roosters I've kept. The only word I can use for it is racist. Um, in general, when cockerels come up together, right, so... They were, they were brooded together either by a hen or in the brooder, and they grew up together. As long as there's enough girls around, there may be some sparring and stuff, but mostly, especially with a decent ratio of hen to rooster, they tend to get along. One time when I first got into chickens, I got some straight-run Egyptian Faomis, and I got some uh, red sex links that were supposed to all be cockerels. You're supposed to be able to tell them apart. I don't know if that failed or maybe the rooster that got mixed in with the red sex links was a Rhode Island red or something. But I ended up with one rooster. And I ended up with six Egyptian Faomi cockerels and two pullets. If you're new to this, cockerel is a rooster. Pullet is a young hen before she's laying eggs. So, what happened? They nearly killed him. He was a rooster I had around for a while. You can find some old videos of him. He ended up being like my best buddy and a pet. We called him Upgrade after the uh, pimp in the movie Idiocracy because he was a pimp daddy rooster once he grew up. But he disappeared for a couple of days, and I hadn't yet figured out that he was a rooster, but the Egyptian Faomis did, and he actually somehow managed to get in the floor of the chicken coop. My wife came in and said she heard a chicken under the coop. I thought she was nuts, but I always also, like I said, yes, to learn to trust my wife. I went out there, and I could hear him under there. He'd been under there a week in 100-degree heat. I had to pull half the floor up. I had to feed him and give him water and lure him to where I could reach under and pull him out. And I realized at that point, I'm looking at a young rooster. As soon as he saw the uh, Faomis, he got really nervous, started growling, making noises, really, really upset because they outnumbered him six to one. The next day, I slaughtered those Egyptian Faomis, and that rooster watched me do it, and he became my best friend. And that's why when I went away from chickens, I made sure he went to a good home because he was a great rooster. And I'll tell you another story about that rooster. Over time, we started to reproduce our birds, and several of his sons in a very large flock where there were a good rooster-to-hen ratio were allowed to remain, and they always got along. Occasionally, he might give them a slap down, but, you know, they worked it out. Animals tend to work things out if we let them as long as we keep the ratio up. So that worked out fine, and, and basically I culled those males based on the ones that spurred me in the coop. If you put a spur in the back of my leg, you hung from the oak tree about five minutes later, and I took the passive roosters. And I really, really advise you that's the easiest way forward if you're breeding your own birds and you want to know which roosters to select. Look for, you know, look for characteristics of taking care of the hens as they get older, etc. But one attacks you, and you've got multiples to pick from, you might be able to reform a rooster, but don't do it if you don't have to. Pick the ones that are naturally accepting of humans, and they do their job as a rooster defending their hens and running their hens. Um... Otherwise, I think that's about where you are. My bigger concern when it comes to roosters and hens and having too many roosters than them fighting, because sooner or later they'll work that out and one will either get his ass beat and conform or one will get beat down to where you need to process it and it'll work itself out, is the hens. When roosters start overbreeding hens, you end up with hens that look like they have freaking mange and feathers missing and stuff like that. And there's two, two tactics to take if that begins to happen in your flock. One is simply remove the hen for a while. Take her and a couple of her friends and put them somewhere the roosters can't get to them. 
The problem with that is generally as soon as you reintroduce those birds to the flock, that rooster goes kind of ape on them. Um, and again, by keeping enough hens around, you get less of the selective kind of one-off, I'm going to breed this one over and over again. Um, what's worked really well for me is those little chicken saddles that protect the chickens back. You put them around their wings. I haven't had to do that in a long time, but when I had birds that were being treated like that, I did that and it worked. You have to do something because not only will the, the behavior from the rooster continue, but those bloody spots and, and bare spots on those hens, the other hens will start picking at it. Chickens use their beak the way you use, what is that? And they use their beak, they have no fingers, they have no hands. So they, and then like, they get a little bit of meat. And no matter what the marketing tells you, chickens are carnivorous, man. Well, they're, not, they're omnivorous, but they like meat. You want to see chickens go crazy, give them some meat. They go nuts. They will, they will strip a bone to where the dog walks up to it, looks at it, and goes, well, there's nothing there for me anymore. So it's, it's not good. It leads to freaking zombie chicken behavior. So you've got to cover it, and you've got to protect that bird. If you do that, most of the time you'll be all right. And there are times when you just say, like, this bird, whether it's a cockerel that's too aggressive or whether it's a hen that's just getting beat up, it's time to cull that bird out, put her in the stew pot, put him in the stew pot, and move on. And, and I mean, that's just part. If you're not going to do that, you need to find someone who will, that will take birds that need to be culled. Otherwise, you're going to have expensive pets if you keep chickens too long once they stop laying or once they become problems. You just It's just the fundamental reality to it. Alright, so, the last part, what brand of feed do I use? I use Texas Naturals, it has no corn, and no soy, and no GMO. It primarily gets its protein from peanut meal and fish meal, and the birds love it. It's also getting harder and harder to source, because my main source stopped carrying it. It was a place called uh, Russell Feeds. I'm now going to have to drive 45 minutes out west to get that feed, and this tells you how much I like it. I'll do it. I'll go, and I don't, see, the thing is, I don't have 150 ducks anymore. I got like 20-something. And what that means is that I can go out there, pick up 10 bags of feed, and I'm good for months. So that's why I'm willing to still do it. Let's talk about the various criteria there that was rattled off. I market no corn, no soy, no GMO because I have it and because my customers like hearing it. I don't want GMO, period, the end, infinity. I will not feed my birds a GMO feed Unless they're going to die if I don't, it's the only thing I can get. Then I would go ahead and do it. Um, the herbicide residue in that is my problem. It's not so much, well, it's genetically modified. I, that's not my problem. My problem is why they genetically modify it. They genetically modify it, then they spray it with glyphosate, a.k.a. Roundup, and other herbicides, and then you feed it to your animal, and then you eat the product. Uh-uh. No. No freaking way. I'm not doing all this work to go ahead and eat herbicide. That's bullshit, and I won't do it, and there's not enough providers out there. No soy. I will not, again, unless my birds are at the edge of dying from not getting fed, put soy into an animal I harvest an egg from. It should be illegal. It's definitely immoral. Soy has phytoestrogens in it. An egg is an ovum. What do you think happens when you feed a female animal a phytoestrogen and harvest the ovum? You're looking at a phytoestrogen bomb. It's worse than a soy latte. That's how I feel. And I'll tell you what, my customers have proven that. Because we've had customers, organic, duck eggs, chicken eggs, you name it, you know, everything. They can't eat them. They have bad reactions to them. They come here, they say, well, I'll just, can I get a half dozen? Here, we'll just give you a half dozen. They call you back up a couple days later. Sometimes they sound like they're damn near in tears. I can eat these. I don't get sick. And the only thing I can, because I don't do organic, because I can't find an organic feed that also does those things. It's more important to me that I have no GMO, which all organic would, but no soy. Soy is the devil. Again, I'll feed it to my birds if I have to, but this is why I'm working harder and harder to produce feed for my birds on my land that's high in protein, so I never end up having to make that hard choice. Corn. If it's not GMO, I don't have a problem with corn. Not for me. Humans should not be eating corn. You do not have a crop. Corn in its natural state is not that sweet corn. It's a very hard-shelled thing. A chicken has crop. Birds have a crop. They eat gravel. They're designed to eat things like grains and seeds. That's what they're supposed to do. You have a giant liver. You're made to eat animal products. I'm sorry if you don't like that. It's true. That's why you have a freaking liver that's this freaking big and no crop. So chickens eating corn, 
I don't have a problem with. It's very low in protein, especially modern corns, so it can't make up the staple of a diet. But if I had to switch to a feed that had some corn in it, but it wasn't GMO, and it still had the right balance of sufficient protein in the 20 percentile range, I'd be okay with it. I will occasionally feed my birds like an organic scratch that includes you know, wheat and barley and cracked corn. Texas Naturals makes that as well. I have not found another brand of feed that meets my criteria, and my birds will eat. A, a, a friend of mine from out west Texas brought me some feed one time, and it sounded fantastic on the composition, and my birds let it rot. They wouldn't eat it. Now, ducks, unlike chickens, get really attached to something. They don't like change. They're like Wayne and Garth. We fear change. Um, so if I had not fed them, they probably would have switched over. So I, I hope I don't end up in that situation as well. It costs me twice as much to feed my birds this way as it does to feed them Purina crap from the feed store right out the corner here that I could go pick up and find. I could, in the time I've done this video, I could already went down there, picked up 10 bags, and been back. And I won't do it. That tells you how I feel about it. If I ever have to, if the supply line of my preferred type of feed dries up, my hope is by that point my birds are getting around 70 to 80% of their diet from the land so that it's less of an effect on them and that would be my last bit of advice so there you go i know i kind of blended ducks back into it uh, but it's what i know and i would i would approach feeding my chickens the same way i really encourage you to start looking into things that you can grow in lots of volume that are high in protein especially those of you that are far enough south to get a long growing season just a little water tank and some water hyacinth i'm going to be doing a lot with that this year Dried water hyacinth leaf that's 35% protein. It's equivalent to most soy that's being made today. Uh, with that, you can do an awful lot to mitigate your, your reliance, which you should be doing anyway. But that way you can more justify these premium feeds. Again, the company that used to ca carry it is Russell Feeds. If you're anywhere in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, there's a bunch of locations. Call them up. Tell them you want it back. <laughs> All right. Take care, guys. I will catch you with another episode tomorrow. Hey guys and gals, welcome to Miyagi Mornings. I believe it's episode 43 if I uh, have it right in my head, and who knows if I do. It's a very busy time of the year for me, so sometimes I forget things. I'm getting ready for a workshop. Remember, tickets go on sale for that Saturday. If you ain't on the Telegram channel for Survival Podcast and you want to come, you ain't coming. I'm just telling you right now, it ain't going to last 10 minutes, so uh, keep that in mind if you want to come to our workshop. We'll be doing some builds, one of them right over here. Anyway, today uh, I went into e uh, to MeWe, and I looked at the post for Miyagi Mornings and kind of looked through and thought about what I wanted to talk about today. The one I wanted to talk about today will be either tomorrow or maybe next week, because uh, there's a prop I need to dig out for it. Uh, I saw another one, though, and I was like, yeah, I could talk about that today. A guy said, hey, a long time ago you did a podcast, and you were talking about Ben Franklin, <laughs> Ben Franklin's quote about a jack-of-all-trades and a master of, 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 of none. But you changed it somehow, and I don't remember how. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, what I said at the time I did that episode, I'm even going to modify further today. I said a jack-of-all-trades and a master of some, right? And, and I, I think I would tra change that, actually, if I want to be more accurate, to a jack-of-most-trades and a master of some. And the reason I'll uh, modify the sayings from Poor Richard's Almanac, written by Benjamin Franklin, one of the founders of the country, and a very, very intelligent man, is I don't think he ever wrote that quote, especially at the time when people thought a little bit more about things like that because they didn't have TV rot in their brains, to be taken in absolute form. That he expected us to extrapolate from it. He expected the reader, if the reader was worthy anyway, the teacher appeared when the student was worthy type of thing, to, uh, to realize you don't deal in absolutes. There's a, you want another quote? How about from a movie? Only the Sith deal in absolutes, right? So to say a jack of all trades, right, is an absolute. To say a master of none is, is an absolute. I would say Franklin was a, a master of, of crafting words and messages. So he was a master of something. He was a master of some other stuff too, but just one example. And I don't think Benjamin Franklin himself was a jack of all, absolute, all trades. I'm sure there were some things he didn't know how to do, some things that he didn't know how to do because they ain't even been invented yet, right? So how does this affect us in our modern world? Well, what this is really all about is being a polymath. And a polymath is a word that you just don't hear very much in the modern vernacular. You certainly don't hear about it in school. 
And if school's worth a shit, they should be teaching kids to be polymaths. And the problem is, even when the word comes up, we look to extreme examples of a polymath, right? Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, Benjamin Franklin, right? And we say, like, that's what the, the standard of a polymath is. A polymath is the billionaire businessman who can fence and sculpt ice with a chainsaw and, you know, all these other That's not what a polymath is. Um, let's look at it this way. If you, if you're an artist, if you paint, are you an artist, right? If you, if you have a hobby and, and each week you put up a canvas and use oils or pastels or watercolors and you paint, are you an artist? Yeah. Right. And are, if you're, if you're a little bit good, you're probably a decent artist. Are you a master artist? So you're defying the, the quote's own point if you only equate polymath with this extreme mastery, right? What we're supposed to be as human beings is, like I said, a jack of most trades. In other words, we should be able to do most of the things that we could possibly need to have done around us, even if we choose not to do them, even if we hire them out. We should understand how to do it. See, this is why, you know, I go with my son to get his brakes fixed on his car when he didn't take care of the maintenance like he was supposed to, and they want to charge him $2,600 for fixing the problem on a car that was, at the time, worth about 3000 bucks. That's stupid. You ask a few questions, make a few statements, the next thing you know, they're doing the job for 250 bucks, and that's going to keep the car running safely for the next few months until he trades it up to another car. That's because I understand how fucking brakes work. I understand what a rotor is. And I understand fucking economics. And the guy that was doing that was a prick. But he was also a prick that was trained specifically to do what he was doing. And he thinks he's helping. But he's not, right? He's like, well, I, and it, I remember that conversation. I, I can't guarantee there might not be a squeak or a squeal if we do it that. Shut the fuck up and get it done. Okay, I'm not putting $2,600 into a car that's worth maybe $3,000 if we put the work into it. And it's worth about the same amount of money if we don't. That's stupid. See, but by understanding basics of mechanics. Now, I was a mechanic in the military. But it wouldn't have mattered. Had I never been a mechanic in the military, just growing up doing shade tree mechanic work and fixing my own damn car like you did back in the 80s, I would have known the same thing. My son should have known that, but he didn't take much of an interest when I tried to teach him. And it ain't his fault. It ain't my fault. You know, it was before I discovered homeschooling and what have you, and I didn't really understand what was being done to him. And it's something he'll still, he'll fight that for the rest of his life, just like I will, because I went to the state school. They're worse now. We don't learn to be generalists in our education system. We get indoctrinated. We get trained. We get put on a course. And then we're told to specialize from there. That's what university is, specialization. Now, most people are specializing in total bullshit today. But, you know, there are people that go on and become engineers or, or they become doctors or they become attorneys or they, 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 they go and specialize into something that actually is meaningful. And they can do that really well. But, I mean, I'll put it to you this way. Back when I was in cabling, structured cabling and networks, there was a uh, credential that I got that was... Really difficult. It took a lot of study to get. I passed the exam on the first time, but mo the failure rate on the first exam was 78%. So it was tough. You had to know a lot of shit. But I'll tell you what, I knew a lot of RCDDs in my time, which, by the way, if you care, is registered communications distribution designer, that she could have said, here's a print, here's a box of cable, here's a bucket of jacks, here's a punch-down tool. Go fucking install this. And they couldn't have done it. They were specialized at kind of the architectural level of cabling. You see what I'm saying? And this is how everybody lives today. Now, what I think a person should be able to do, honestly, and I can't do all this, is I think most people should be able to build a house. I think it's one of the first things we should be teaching people. That's why this week on Odyssey, I'm featuring uh, segments on people that built their own cob house with no real experience. Don't you think that makes sense? I mean, the, one, the first family I featured this week... Their kids are being homeschooled, and I can just see people going, but are they really going to learn the life skills they need? Because they're studying this little area in the house. And like, you realize you listen to what they're, they're learning. They're learning basic academics. They're learning mathematics. They're learning to read and write. They're learning to do research. They're learning all that stuff, too. But these girls that are like this big probably know more about how to build a house than I do. 
And I'm not a bad carpenter. So what, when they're this big and they're 18 years old and they have a fundamental understanding of how their parents managed their economics, built their house, raised livestock, and grow food, you have two little girls that are going to be young women that can go out and acquire a small piece of land, build their own house, maintain their own house, build all the systems in their own house without necessity of the grid, grow their own food, engage in commerce with their neighbors. Now you tell me school does jack diddly fuck all that compares to that alone, plus these kids are learning every bit as much of the meaningful academics that any kid's learning going to school. My grandson's in there doing, actually, my grandson's out at his PE class playing basketball with his sister right now, because he's already done with his fucking work, and it ain't even 10 o'clock in the morning. So what the fuck was the school system doing with him for nine fucking hours a day? They were programming him. And that's why we don't have jacks of most trades and masters of some anymore. We have complete fuck-all useless people in society. They can't do anything except stamp something or hit print on something or something like that, right? You give them a job, you train them in that one little limited capacity, and maybe they can function through it half-assed. And how many of you worked with people that you're like, why is this fucking person even here? Like, it would actually be less work for me if they would just fire him. I've worked in jobs where I'm like, you know what, you could fire these two people, let me absorb their responsibilities, pay half their wages, I'll do a better job, you'll make more money, and so will I. Right? That's how bad it's become. My grandfather, I remember him. We're out in the middle of a fucking river. I mean, like, it's a mile-wide section of the Susquehanna River. And the water's moving pretty good. We're in a little john boat anchored with a goddamn rock. Okay? A rope tied to a rock anchoring us in an eddy where it won't blow us down the river. He goes to fire the motor up, and he goes, Next thing I know, he's got the cover off. The only tool he had was a pocket knife and a screwdriver. And in about 10 minutes, he had the rope wrapped around it with the cover off, and it ran like shit, but it got us to shore. You know what most people would be doing today? Picking their cell phone up and calling a fucking Coast Guard to get them out of a river they could have walked to shore from. Because we can't do shit as a society anymore. And you know what? It is a disgrace. And I'm going to tell you why it's a disgrace. You're either watching this on Odyssey or YouTube right now. Guess what? Anything you want to fucking know, right up there is a search bar. Stick that shit in there and there'll be somebody that tells you how to do it. We have never had more people teaching hard skills in the history of humanity. And we've never had more people that can't do a fucking thing at the same time. Your great-grandfather right now, if he was dropped in here at about 45 years of age, at the prime of his life, and understood what was going on, would start kicking your ass out the fucking door and saying, get some shit done. You should be able to run a goddamn business. You should be able to do commerce, right? You should be able to figure out how to value. If something breaks, you should have some idea how to fix it. If you use something to rely on something, you don't know how it works, you are wrong. I'm sorry. I didn't expect this to turn into a rant, but when I think about the dumbing down of society today, it abhors me. We live in the most information-rich time in the history of humanity. What you have access to, right? Think about the, the Library of Alexandria being burned, all the knowledge lost. The, the knowledge that's at your fingertips with a fucking $199 Chromebook and jumping on somebody's Wi-Fi that's too stupid to secure with a password exceeds the entire Library of Alexandria. you got to be kidding me. America can't do shit. It's okay to be a master of some things, too. It's okay to specialize in some things, but not to the exclusion of everything else in our world. And I want to end with this. Do you know what a master is? A master is someone who knows a lot of shit about a thing and can do it better than most people who are good at it and knows he doesn't know the square root of fuck all about it. If someone thinks they know everything or almost everything about a subject, they're a master of shit. I'll tell you that right now. The person that refers to themselves a master is no master. True masters shy away from terms like that. They shy away from accolades because they become so good at what they do. They've learned so much about what they do. They finally learn what they don't know. And it builds humility in them. You need a few things in your life that you aspire to become that with. And you need a generalized knowledge to be able to do the things that are most necessary to support yourself and your family. That is a jack of most traits and a master of some. Remember, only the Sith deal in absolutes. With that's been Jack Spierko with another episode of Miyagi Mornings.
Hey guys, welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 44, and it is a Thursday morning, and hopefully it won't be too windy and uh, mess up the audio quality in today's episode. I'm trying to enjoy my time outside, even though we're going to have gusting winds over 30 miles an hour today, it's going to be pretty warm, it's going to be okay through the weekend, and then... Yeah, that Arctic blast that's fixing to knock you guys up in the Midwest down to like negative 20 degrees, it's going to get here and we're going to be around positive 20 degrees. It's cold for Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. It's not cold for ducks, but it is cold for chickens and baby chickens. So we got a dead-gone chicken incubating eggs in the middle. It's just a little update on the farm set. Today I want to talk to you about a permaculture principle called appropriate technology and what it does and doesn't mean and how it applies to things like housing. So let's start off with what it isn't. There are a significant number of what I consider invaders of the permaculture movement that believe that permaculture was founded for the purpose of enacting some sort of leftist utopia. Uh, it's also heavily infested with vegans. And if you get it, I've always said if you're a vegan and you respect my lifestyle, I respect yours. If you were a vegan and you came to my home, I would make you for dinner the best vegan meal you would ever have. And I would sit there and eat a steak and hope you're okay with it. Because if you're not, you can get out of my house, right? So when I say that, I don't mean that about anybody that makes that dietary choice. You know who the people I'm talking about are. If you can't understand it, you're probably on the wrong channel. Well, these people have, we call them purple breathers in the world of permaculture. And they have this, this twisted idea of what the movement's all about. So they want to drag politics into it. And I think if you're a left-wing extremist or right-wing extremist, anything in between, an anarcho uh, individual like myself, there's room for everybody. But you can't change the technology, you can't change the design science, and that's what this is really all about. So well, the reason I bring that up, there's people that think appropriate technology would mean something like we shouldn't use machinery or mechanization or automation or anything that eliminates jobs because the appropriate technology gives people who need a job a job. I don't know where you get that from. Appropriate technology means what do you have available? What are you trying to do within the limits of what you have available? And when do you go to, let's say, an outside input in a situation where we're talking about housing anyway. So what we made this one come out is I've been putting up a bunch of uh, movies, really, on Cobb Housing on my Odyssey channel, which if you're sitting here on YouTube, you should totally go check out. And uh, so somebody emailed me and said, are, are you saying, like, everybody now should build Cobb Houses because, you know, they're environmentally friendly whatever? And the answer is no. Do you know what it would be to build a Cobb House on this property if I didn't already have a house here? Stupid. Because I would literally have to import almost every single thing to build that house with. The reason Cobb housing makes so much sense is probably about 70% of the land that people choose to live on is made up of a clay and sand mixed soil. That's why they make sense. Because right under your feet, everywhere you go, there's the material to make your wall, your floor, your facade, whatever part that's going to play in your housing, it's right there. And in most places where people live, there is timber that's available for framing of door frames and roof choices and stuff like that. And if that's all you're doing, you need a lot less of it. And since you're going to build a house, if you're in a place where there's some, you know, timber growing anyway, you're probably going to have to take some down to put the house in. So it's all right there. About the only thing you might have to bring in is straw. And most places where all this is going on, there's straw not that far away. And there's enough water to do the mixture. So this all makes sense. And that's appropriate technology. And when you think about it this way, right, right here, you guys see this? This is a cattle panel. Now imagine this was a fence and I could stick my arm way through that fence. Let's say on the other side, there's a fence built out of this stuff. And on the other side of it, there was a thing that I wanted, right? Because we understand what technology means. It means putting things together that wouldn't happen all by themselves with the intention of making something else happen. That's, that's the way we're looking at technology here. And I wanted that thing, and I could almost reach it. Like I'm like, just barely, you're doing little creepy fingers, and God, if I could just stretch one more inch. And I look down next to me, and there's a stick. But I think, you know what, self? Last night I saw an infomercial for a grabber to get stuff down from high places. It's made in China, and it probably lasts about two months of use before it falls the hell apart. But if I order now, I can get two for the price of one. Just pay a separate shipping fee, whatever the that means, right? So I think, you know what I'll do? I'll go order the grabber. It has to be shipped. Here comes the jets, right? So I'll order a grabber that has to be shipped in a container across the vast Pacific Ocean from China, warehoused, and then, good Lord, I think I'll edit that out for the podcast version. Let them get over us. 
telling you they know. All right, so it has to be shipped in, then it has to be shipped again, then it goes to a warehouse, then it comes to my house, then I finally get it, then I take this thing that only serves one purpose, and I go get that item. You think I'm an idiot. Like, when I put it that way, you, like, who would do, there's a stick right there. Pick the stick up. It's appropriate technology. It does the job. It's readily available. Use it. Well, when we go into a place where all the material we need to build a house is, and then we bring in, you know, southern pine from Louisiana all the way up to, like, Idaho, that doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't make sense all of a sudden just because it's some um, eco-friendly housing. So if you live in a place where there's plenty of stone, almost no clay, right, <laughs> but lots of timber, a stone and timber frame house would be the appropriate technology for the area. If you look at the way humans have lived, housing was highly dependent on local resources when there weren't semi-trucks to bring it into you. So when does it make sense to bring in materials? and still considered appropriate technology. When the goals that you have are such that you cannot do it where you are. So we start out from the standpoint of building a house, right? What's the goal? The primary goal is to create a shelter for humans to exist and outside of the effects of nature. There's probably a hundred secondary and a thousand tertiary goals we can add to that, but that's the primary goal. So can we accomplish that with what we have? Then we start looking at secondary goals. I want it to look nice. I want it to be reactive housing, meaning that when I need to be warm, I want it to, to automatically be warmer inside than it is outside. And when I need it to be cool, I want it to be automatically cooler inside than outside. Can I do that with what I have? And if I can, then I should start down that path. Am I able to do it? What's the scale of permanence? Is the regula If I have this piece of land and the regulations say I can't do what I want to do, then I have to adapt to and design around that limitation. That's really high. Like regulations and laws and codes are just below mountains on the scale of permanence. They're very hard to change. It happens, but I can't bet on it. Do I live in a place where I just don't have the materials to do what I want or what I want to do is not doable? Behind me is a great big 4,400-gallon pond. I get so much out of that pond, it's totally worth building. If I could dig a hole here, there wouldn't be a 4,400-gallon pond. There'd be about, on my three acres, I'd have about an acre of water in various in-ground ponds that would use no materials that were brought in because that would be appropriate technology. I'd have bigger ponds that would give me more and cost me less and require no inputs. Why do I have that? Because about nah, six inches below where I'm standing right now is slab rock. And it's ugly limestone that looks like concrete, and then it's a slab that looks like a sarcophagus. And I can't go, I could go down one foot, so that's how far I went down and I built up. If you wanted this look, because let's say you lived in a neighborhood where you can do this, but you can't put it in a pond pond, right? Then if you can dig, it would make a lot of sense. Maybe that's only a foot high back there. That's a lot less brought in, and you've gone down. If you live in a place where you can put an in-ground pond, and the only input you need to bring in is like um, bentonite clay, that's a much more sustainable long-term input, and it's a much more natural tool. So then that would be the, the case. Whatever situation we're in, we need to evaluate, again, first the primary goals, then the materials that can accomplish those primary goals, and then the secondary goals. you know why there's cattle panels making an arch over my head right here? Because when I built this, I had no intention when I first started designing the system that I'm standing underneath right now to put in a panel. I looked at this system and said, now how do we put annual gardens around it in the most space-conscious, easy-to-maintain way that makes sense? And when I put it down on graph paper and put it to scale, this result that's kind of like a, a mix of like Victorian and Asian influence. Not because I tried to do that, because that's what worked. It was appropriate technology. And then I was like, self, what other resources do you have on this property? And I remembered I had four of these cattle panels. They were just laying over there up against one of my water tanks. I didn't even buy them. They came from the neighbor who bought them for some other reason and decided they didn't want them anymore and got rid of them. So it made real sense to take that existing resource and existing design and put the two together. And a function stacking is appropriate technology. And the only way this is appropriate technology, if it's not recycled, because I'm going to buy some in for more for a project that we're doing in March. I have to get more energy out of the production that this enables than went into making it and transporting it to me. And it might take five or seven years for me to do that. But I'm confident I can so that I will. We need to start thinking differently, too, with this. We need to be thinking about, if I'm building a house, well, 
I should build a house that my great-grandchildren could live in. That's worth doing. I should try to build a house that I don't have to rely on debt to have. There's a lot of things that play into that. And then I also, again, have to take reality into question. People might be then like, Jack, why don't you build a natural structure? Here come the freaking jets again. Well, because I bought this house for a song for what it is. I, I paid so much less for this property than it's worth because I used another, uh, another appropriate technology called negotiation skills, and it already has a house on it. To take that house down out of some ego trip would be a waste of that resource. It's better that we do things like, well, since it was orientated perfectly to the south, well, what we did is we glass-walled that whole south wall with great big windows so that I, I use almost no heating energy in the winter. We have to get into the 20s and stay in the 20s to really need to use the heat much at all. We generally keep our thermostat in the winter in the low 60s. If we do get a little chilly, we might turn it up for a couple of minutes, and as soon as the house warms up, we turn it back down. And that is modifying what we, what we had to be better. And if, if we could have done that in a way using recycled materials that looked good, we would have done it. But we couldn't because we have to preserve the value of the home in case we have to sell it. That's another reality that comes in to checking all of this. And you need to be thinking about this to where we do it with as much ethics as we can, but an acceptance of the reality that we live in, the scale of permanence with things like codes and regulations, and preserving resale value. Here's another example. If I lived in a part of Texas and I had a vacant piece of land, and I didn't have materials to build my own home, I would seriously consider having the material that brought in would be concrete, and I'd make a dome home. Because I live in Tornado Alley, and an F4 tornado can hit that with direct impact, and it doesn't even, it doesn't even care. You could sit in the living room and go, gee, there goes my windows, otherwise I'm good. That makes a lot of sense, because that home will be there when my great-great-great-grandchildren are around. But I have to consider, is this my forever home? Because resale is a bitch because how appraisals work. All of that has to be factored into what you're doing. But that's what appropriate technology is all about. Now, what I, the lesson from today's Miyagi mornings is not how to choose the materials to build your home with. It's how to take any project that you ever want to do on your property or on a property you're helping with and evaluate what are my resources, what am I trying to do, and how can I bring the appropriate technology to this thing, no matter what it is. Hopefully, hopefully, that gets the mind going because you know what that makes you do? Evaluate your resources. And you start to realize how much you have available, and you start using those first. And I think it would be interesting if we appropriately used the resources we had available before we went out of bounds to get resources from elsewhere. With that, I've been Jack Spirico with another episode of Miyagi Mornings. Hope you enjoyed it. Remember, this is good on YouTube and better on my Odyssey channel. Hey guys and gals, welcome to the Friday edition of Miyagi Mornings. I think this is uh, 45, is that right? It's either 45 or 50. It has to end with a 5 or a 0 because it's a Friday and we didn't miss any yet during any weeks. Um, this one I'm going to do is an email that came in. I thought this might be something that uh, probably affects a lot of people out there with concerns when it comes to providing your own feed for poultry. Um, this is from Kevin and he says, I feed my small flock of chicken and ducks Lots of kitchen scraps, in addition to all the leftover garden and fruit tree leftovers. They also get to eat and pick up any bones left from steaks when I clean fish, or when I clean fish. I also feed them old bait, fish carcasses, and crab shells. To put this in perspective, I did throw two 15-pound black drum to the birds, frozen and cut into thirds over a few weeks. Dogs wouldn't eat the fish, but the chickens loved it. I'm going to pause there a second. Do not offer fish like that to dogs, because they might eat it if it's not boned or cooked. Um, black drum is a saltwater fish, so I'm not worried about parasites in that situation really at all. Um, but fish bones and dog throats do not go together. Chickens are gonna eat away from it. So just not all dogs would turn, turn that down. Um, <clears throat> we have roughly 10 chickens and 10 ducks. I also raised 20 meat birds as needed. I ordered the next batch of 20 this week. Plan to eat the males first due to the size and keep the rest in the yard as a backup food source. We don't have much freezer space. I'm not very picky about how much food the main flock gets. The price of feed is worth the entertainment and delicious food. I'd like to dial in the meat birds. The starter and feed rations are quite a bit more expensive. 
how do I calculate how much protein I feed in the meat birds and the flock and keep the protein high enough for good growth and egg laying? Here's the answer. You're not going to. You're just not going to. When you start feeding birds this varied assortment of waste stream, you're not going to. The only way to do it would literally be to weigh everything that goes into the feed, get the best estimate of the protein counts of all of it, measure the utilization of the, the amalgamated feed, right? So it would have to be weighed before and after, and then calculate that as a best estimate. Does that mean you shouldn't do it? No. Doesn't mean it at all. This idea that we're going to always feed bird X for purpose Y, protein ratio Z, is very, very modern. So people have been raising animals for animal products and for slaughter for, for meat for almost as long as human beings have had enough wherewithal to kind of band together and put up any sort of infrastructure to handle animals. And there is no need for us when we're feeding an incredibly varied diet to get too fiddly about the protein unless we know, unless we know there's not enough protein available. I've said this this week when I did a show about chickens on the podcast. We look at birds and we think they're stupid. And let's be honest, we're talking about an animal with at best an actual pea brain. Like, we're not talking about a higher organism. Like, the difference in the intelligence level between, let's say, a chicken and a dog is, is astronomical. But they're not stupid. They know what they know well. And they're designed to be survivors. And as long as you're making sure there's enough protein available, they'll eat the protein they need. And they'll probably end up a lot healthier Doing it that way, then, you know, we're going to use, because this is a meat bird grow out, 22% protein feed. I am big on making sure that the feed that has that ratio is available to them. And the way I know that I'm doing my job is the less of it they eat, the better the job I'm doing. So since this individual, and I'm not sure if he's doing this 100% free range, or maybe he's uh, tractoring or paddocking the meat birds. I'm not sure which one it is. But either way, these birds are out. They're scratching the ground. They're eating insects, right? Right there, you're going to get the protein up. If you want to kind of push it over, get a big giant bag of something like uh, mealworms or black soldier fly larva and throw a small handful, you know, let's say... Per dozen birds, a half a handful a day. Add it in as a kicker. Uh, you're feeding fish waste, you know, and people go, oh, my God. And then they'll go buy organic freaking chicken feed, and you look at, like, the first, second, or third ingredient is what? Fish meal. You know, I don't have a problem with that. Just, yeah, keep it away from the dogs. I've had dogs eat whole live fish before. My dog, Charlie, I... Took it fishing one time and I caught a, a golden shiner about that big and it, you know, they have a soft mouth and it flipped off the thing and he grabbed it and it was crunch, crunch and he took off and I'm like, I, you know, so they'll probably be okay. I just, when I think about the structure of fish bones and dog throats, I'm, I'm not a fan of maybe taking that approach. Um, I also would be a little bit leery of feeding raw fish waste, um, to any animal under my care. If it was uh, a freshwater fish, uh, there's probably a lot less parasitic risk to a chicken than to a human with that. We have a different physiology and different digestive system, etc. But if I were going to do this with freshwater fish waste, you know, I would just get a big strainer basket and a big pot with a propane burner, and I would just put them in boiling water, even just a minute. That's going to bring the temperature up to where those parasite parasites can't. You know, you had to boil rolling water 10 minutes to make... No, you don't. No, you don't. I'm not even going to get into that today. That's just that's just some bullshit somebody wrote down and people repeated. That's that's complete crap. You know how long you got to boil water to make it safe to drink? Yeah, zero seconds. 
by the time your water gets hot enough to boil, it's already pasteurized. I'm, I'm not going to go into that today. But same theory, like you give it a shock of that high heat, just let's, let's kick off any of the parasites and uh, then go ahead and feed that through your birds. And that's what I do. Like when I have fish waste that I wanted to give my chickens, I just take a strainer and, and, and boil it for a couple of minutes and then let it cool and give it to them. Uh, and you're right, they'll they'll process it well. And I put that right into my composting system. And so they, it looks like somebody sat down with like toothpicks, tweezers, and a microscope. They they pick, and there's nothing but bones. It looks like something that belongs in a museum when they're done with it. And then you just kind of turn that into the compost, and that breaks down with the composting process, and it's fantastic. With meat birds... I would not try to go feed free. I just wouldn't. I would, I would again, and this is why I talked about this yesterday with guarding, but in so many ways, record keeping is so important. When you're feeding, you can actually do what I said. That's why it gets used in warehouse, you know, style, you know, KFOs and stuff like that, because they can. And that way they can actually dial in that protein to the exact requirement. And remember, that's the minimum requirement that the animal needs to grow out in 8 to 12 weeks so they can process it. That's what that means in their world. And it may not be the healthiest for them. They may be better off on a little less and taking you a little longer to get there. Uh, I find people that do pasture poultry, even that use Cornish crosses, that don't try to give them 100% of feed from feed, that actually you put them out there, uh, they get a lot less like leg breaks and things like that that are that that breed is particularly famous for. Um, you're in a different world here. You're not tr- like if you go an extra week before your cock rolls out of that meat run are big enough to harvest. It doesn't it doesn't put you out of business or something like that. So don't try to go completely away from the feed. Get the feed with the protein requirement that they need, and then start looking at feed utilization. And so. The, the metric, for instance, because I'm more experienced with ducks than I am with, uh, with chickens. The metric for ducks, and specifically some of the breeds that I raise, to be healthy, happy, energetic, going on about their business and producing eggs, is 0.4 pounds per duck per day. And if you have even 20 ducks, right, that, that adds up. You go through a 50-pound bag pretty quick at that rate. I, when I was doing a large commercial flock and I had to make money, went for a quarter point two five pounds of food per duck per day. Right now, when I look at the utilization, I'm down to about point two, so about half of what's required. That means, without getting complicated in this, between all the other scraps and things they get and all their foraging, they're gonna get, they're getting about half their diet from that, and that number goes lower at certain times of the year. And that's going to be right when protein's at its peak. So they're only going to get so much protein from vegetative matter. They get most of their protein because they're predators. Chickens are as well. And if you don't think they are, let them out and watch. So in the summer when the grasshoppers peak, I'm down to a utilization of feed rate now of like 0.1 to 0.15, depending on how it fluctuates. And I'm not trying to dial it in. I don't worry, like, okay, so is the balance enough or too? No, I just let them be. So just make sure, like, look at it like managing bees. You feed bees because you don't know that they're getting enough from the land, but you only feed them as much as they take. And you let them go out and work. And the more there is to work, the less you feed. Same thing. Again, folks, we've been doing this a long time. Don't sweat it. Um, I've asked Jeff Lawton to get back to me. He has a video he called Chicken Tractor on Steroids. If you all want to check and see if you can find it, let me know about it, if you can find a copy of it. I didn't have time to look today. But this is where he built a chicken tractor compost system that kind of went around his gardens. And he fed his chickens 100% from a waste stream. No grain, no chicken feed. And they took a couple weeks to kind of like accept it and, 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 and get on with it. But in the end, they ended up producing great quality eggs, etc. Now, I don't think... If you lock those birds up in a place without a lot of insect activity and things like that, without access to the ground, you can do that and have them be healthy. I, I don't think that's the case. But if they can go out and forage, even tractored, if the tractor gets moved enough and they're working the ground and they're eating beetle grubs and stuff like that, this is not as complicated as, you, as you've been led to believe. My last analogy, because I love analogies, to help people understand things. 
when I was a kid, and you were you know reading hunting magazines and stuff like that, you would read articles about this new rifle, and it would be like, well, that comes in three hundred eight, thirty hundred six, two seventy, whatever. They just that's that's all you know. Like here's your caliber options, and no one was like, oh gee, I wonder if a two seventy is good enough to kill a deer with. You know, and you might hear a little bit about new ammunition lines and stuff like that, but mostly it was just, hey, here's how to hunt. You open a magazine today about hunting, and, you know, you have all these advertisements for these super bullets and these perfect mushrooms, and, you know, it's like the 227 Super B on steroids with a half twist of the 338 LePluit thrown in because those deer are armor-plated now, right? And, and because of this constant marketing push to here's the latest and greatest round from Marlin with a soft tip so it can go into a lever gun, just like your daddy killed a million deer with, but you need it now because the deer have Kevlar jackets. They've made people start to question the efficacy of, of rounds that have killed so many deer. You know, like if you need more than a 3006 to shoot just about anything in North America, you are the problem, not the round. Right? And it doesn't mean I don't like these hotter rounds and stuff like that. But they, they serve a purpose, but we don't need them. Right? And that same confusion has been put into every place where we've put overloads of information and convinced people that, like, there's some sort of horrible person if their meat chickens are getting 20 versus 22% protein or whatever. It's not the case. Those regimented feeds exist because we started putting birds into confinement and other, like, protein levels, right, in all these animal feeds. They exist because we confine animals. As soon as we take away the confinement, it's not that we don't have to worry about it. We just have to worry a hell of a lot less. Hope you guys enjoyed the week. I'll be back next week with another week of Miyagi Mornings. Remember, you can catch this episode and all the rest of the week's episode in audio format only, right in the Survival Podcast feed that goes out on Saturday mornings, Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap. And if you want to contribute to Miyagi Mornings, you want to tell me what you want me to talk about, you're like, this jerk, I wish you'd talk about this instead. Get on MeWe, hook up with me, become my friend, Right at the top of my profile is a sticky post. You want to submit content? That's the place to do it. Take care, guys. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series.